When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are back with part two of our enlightening conversation with the one and only Dr. Andy Galpin. If you found our first discussion informative, today's episode promises to delve even deeper. We're going to be touching on the topic of optimal nutrition, delving into the role and timing of carbohydrates in our diets. It's far more nuanced than you might think. And we'll be discussing the essential role that protein plays in our bodies, which I was pretty shocked by Andy's stance on this. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that. It has changed my behavior literally immediately that day. I started doing things differently based on what he told me about protein. So if you were keen to further your understanding of nutrition and refine your dietary approach, you are in the right place, my friends, for this engaging conversation. Music, if you are not already, for all of our insightful episodes just like this one. Buckle up, everybody, and let's get started. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Can you add muscle and lose fat at the same time? You can. It depends on how specific you want to be. If you are fairly untrained, or lowly trained, or sedentary, however you want to call that, more possible. You get to moderate to decently fit, then that becomes uh, basically fundamentally impossible. If not physiologically, practically pretty impossible. So a challenge to do for sure. All right. So what are the environments that you need to create in your body in order to add muscle? What's the environment you need to create to lose fat and why do they collide? Well, you're going the opposite direction. It's basic physics or basic chemistry, right? So fundamentally, we are all organic uh, compounds. What does that mean? We're all made of carbon. That's what organic chemistry is, carbon-based. Um, all life, when we go looking for signs of life, uh, effectively, we're looking for carbon, right? Carbon-based life forms is what we're after. And why that matters. Everything in your body that we use for substrates for energy are big carbon chains. So your carbohydrates, that's what they are. It is a carbon that has been hydrated. So one carbon molecule attached to one water molecule. That's the chemical formula for like glucose is C6H12O6, meaning it is one carbon attached to one H2O. Glucose is six of those carbons. So it's six C6, double the hydrogen and six oxygen. Other forms of carbohydrate are smaller chains like fructose um, and starches are longer chains, smash them all together. But fundamentally, all carbon, all carbohydrates are just carbon chains attached to water. Fat is the same thing. Fat is also just big, long chains of carbon. Whether you're a free fatty acid, now, in fact, that's what we call different fatty acids. It depends on how many carbons they have. So if it has six carbons or eight carbons or 12 or 18, then it has a different name, steric acid or whatever else, right? If it has um, 
any breaks in the bonds between the carbons, we either call them uh, polyunsaturated or unsaturated or monounsaturated or saturated. If they're all, all the bonds are perfectly saturated, we call it a saturated fat. If there's one break, it's a monounsaturated. If there's more than one break, it's a polyunsaturated. If it's stored as a triglyceride, you have three. That's why we call it a tri, right? One, two, three fatty acid chains, and you have a three-carbon uh, glycerol backbone. So it's a triglyceride. So it is one three-carbon uh, glycerol backbone and three fatty acids coming up. Big chains of carbon is all we are, right? So when we're talking about manipulating weight, um, what we're talking about is more carbon going out than carbon coming in. You can split hairs and talk about how much fat versus how much and carbohydrate or whatever you want, but it doesn't matter fundamentally because it's all just carbon. And when you take a breath in, that's oxygen coming in, basically. When you take a breath out, that is carbon dioxide going out. The difference between O2 and CO2 is the carbon. Where did that carbon come from? It came from you. Whether that carbon came from fat that was stored behind your neck in a triglyceride, fine. Whether that came from uh, glucose that was in your blood, fine. It doesn't really matter. Carbons are going out. Carbons are only coming in in humans when we then consume foods. So we eat carbohydrate, we got carbons. We eat fat, we got carbons. We eat animals, we got like- You haven't mentioned protein. Is there- P Protein's not a very effective fuel. So you want to think it's about- it's still carbon. Not really. Interesting. So give me, I know nothing about organic chemistry. You're looking at nitrogen. That's really what you're looking at, right? So you're basically consuming a whole host of, of nitrogen and amino acids for protein. So you can technically take those, convert those into uh, carbohydrate molecules, gluconeogenesis in the liver or different, different ways like that. But fundamentally, protein is a very poor fuel source. If you want to look at your metabolic process, you're looking at maybe 5% of your calories uh, or energy is going to come from protein. If you're using protein as a fuel, you're probably in a pretty bad spot. Like something is going wrong uh, for that to happen. It's kind of like a little bit of a backup system. But you want to think about this. If you're going to build a shelter, and I said, okay, great. Um, I've got some metal pipes and things like that. And then I've got uh, some paper and I've got some wood and things like that. And uh, great, go ahead and build a shed. You would almost certainly say the structure of this shed is going to be made out of metal. Can you technically melt metal and make a fire? Yeah. But if, you're, if your goal to stay alive is melting metal to make a fire, uh, not, you're not in a good spot, right? Something really bad has happened. What you want to do is say, hey, we have tons of wood. This lights on fire very quickly. It's easy to manage. We're going to use that as our fuel to make our fire. And then we're going to use the fire to melt down some of that metal and reshape it and reform it into the exact structure we want. The analogy here is the protein is the metal. It's hard to break down, hard to rebuild, and you don't want to do it very often. But when you do it correctly, you can get an awesome structure that should stay there for a very, very long time. Wood is very easy to manipulate back and forth. Now, what is wood made of? Carbon, right? If you were to take a, a log and you were to slice off a very thin slice of a log, you would use that and you could write on it, and you could call that papyrus, or now we would call that paper, right? Amazing. Well, if I take that thing, and I slittle down a tiny little sliver of that, and I put a little bit of stuff on the end of it, I can make a match out of it. It's all carbon. It's all coming from wood. In this analogy, 
a match is great. I can light that thing really quickly and I can get a few seconds of usable energy. Fire. That's phosphocreatine. That's the role of creatine in your body. Very, very quick, but burns out in however long it takes a match to burn out. I don't know, seconds, mm. 30 seconds, something like that. Great. If you were to take that thing though and get the paper going, if you ever made a uh, fire in the woods and you've used paper, you realize, well, that's great. It'll last a lot longer than the match will, but it's not a, a permanent fuel source either. That's carbohydrates, right? If you were to then throw the wood on the fire and you said, hey, look, if you want a sustainable fire, use the match, get it going, light the paper, take the paper, light the logs on fire. It takes forever to get the logs going, but they're going to stay there for a very long time. That's fat. Okay. Now, obviously I made a bunch of physiology and chemistry errors there on purpose. It's, it's an analogy, folks, right? Just getting to a rough idea here that you have different ways to create fuel. And the point is, like we talked about earlier, it's not bad or good. It is simply giving you options, right? So we can have faster fuel sources. We can have more sustainable fuel sources. There are pros and cons to both sides, right? If you are maximizing carbohydrate only metabolism, you're going to have major limitations. If you're maximizing fat metabolism, you're going to have major limitations. This is just the nature of, of our world, right? Pros and cons saying that. Ideal scenario for either one of your cases, fat burning or muscle growth, is we have the proper fuel from those sources, fat and carbohydrates, to then reform and rebuild the protein into the shapes that we want it to be in. We use our metal for that, and we don't keep ripping off our siding to put in the fire when we should have just got more wood, right? That's a bad spot to be in. So the conditions that you need to have to have both of those goals are fairly similar. If you want to lose fat, you have got to be in a negative caloric balance. That's just simply going to have to happen. More carbon has to be coming out of you than carbon coming in you. Now, how do you make that happen? You have two options. You consume less carbon. Option two, you expel more carbon. Option three, I guess you do a little bit of both. So if you want to reduce the amount of carbon you're eating, great. You want to increase the amount of carbon you're expelling, i.e. more work, more energy, more movement, great. Fundamentally, that's all you have to do. If you can do that while holding on to enough of your protein, then you're not going to lose as much muscle mass, but you'll lose fat, okay? That's the key trick there. And this is why people will say, hold your protein fairly high, keep that around, but then reduce your calories from fat or carbs or both or some different way, which it's almost irrelevant which one you choose or what combination for this goal alone. Then you're going to be able to lose mostly fat and not lose a ton of muscle along for the ride. You're going to lose some muscle. That's just the nature of being in a caloric deficit. But you can try to lose as much fat as possible. If you want to gain muscle, then you go the inverse direction, which is to say, I need to have the cellular energy to power the workout to drive the stimulus we talked about earlier. I need to have the cellular energy to go through protein synthesis. Remember, when you break a chemical bond, right? So these carbons are attached in a chemical bond. You break that bond, that's either going to give off energy or require energy. And in the case of humans, that's going to give off energy. So you broke a bond and that gave off energy. Well, now you want to reform a new bond that doesn't exist. You want to put two amino acids together. You want to synthesize them. That's protein synthesis. That synthesis process requires cellular energy. Not just the energy for the workout, but you actually have to have the fuel, mostly in the form of carbohydrates, to power that connection process. You have to have the supply, 
the amino acids, and you have to have the fuel to form that connection. That's what we're really going after. So, so sorry, I, I'm going to pause you there because uh, there's something broken in the way that I'm tracking this. So that sound, if I need fat or glucose, fat. Fat or I, carbs. Yeah. So I need one of those to make the muscle. Mm -hmm. Yes. Since Primarily carbohydrate things, for that, yeah. Okay, so then uh, maybe you just answered it. So what I was thinking is if I need the fat in order to build the muscle, why do I not naturally get leaner as I'm building no. the muscle? Yeah. Because it uses carbohydrate as a preferred fuel source for that? Mm -hmm. Why? Just because uh, it burns faster? It's just like a quicker thing? A couple of things. It's faster and it is immediate. So you store your carbohydrates in the actual muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. You don't store much fat in the actual muscle tissue. Interesting. Is that why you store? Wait. So you're using carbohydrate both to build the muscle and to work out. Yep. So there's something in the contractile process that it needs mm -hmm. carbohydrate for. Yeah. So effectively, the way that muscles contract is you have two major filaments, is what they're called, myosin and actin. And uh, just think about it as, as, the, as the myosin reaches up and grabs the actin. And it squeezes the actin together. So when the actin molecules, if you're watching on the video, sorry, audio friends, I'll try to describe this. But you have two, I'm, I'm pointing two of my hands at each other, pointing my fingers. So my middle fingers are touching each other. My thumbs are pointed in the sky, okay? Um, that's the direction. Now, if I were to slide my fingers past each other and stack them on top of each other, you see how the height of the bottom of my pinky to the top of my pointer fingers increases because mm. I'm stacking them on top of each other? That's the actin molecule. So if I flex my bicep, and I pull the actin over top of each other, the height gets larger. Mm. I'm stacking the molecules. Rather than being end-to-end, uh, -end, they're now right. stacking over Length top. Length gets shorter, them. but they stack up. Exactly, right? Now, for that process to occur, that requires ATP, which is cellular energy, right? Now, if I want to, if I have all the time in the world, I can break down that triglyceride stored behind my neck. I can go through what's called you lipolysis. You use that example all the time. Why always behind your neck? It's just the one that like, I think I want to make it differentiated from the exercising muscle. Got it. Right. It, it's not coming from, uh, when you, if you use this analogy and you talk about it just like a different part of the bicep, hmm. it doesn't make, um, I don't think it sticks out in people's head as much that it's coming from all parts Where of the body basically equally. Right. So there's no targeting of fat loss specifically in the exercising muscle hmm. that much. Um, relative to carbohydrate burning. So if I'm using my bicep, I'm going to burn the carbohydrate in the bicep. But if I'm using fat for some part of this process, it'll come from wherever. It's mostly coming from everywhere else in the body, which is why when people lose fat, they don't just lose it in the area that they were working out. They lose it equally in their face and their yeah. jaw and their fingers and their toes and all these places. Very right? upsetting that I lose it in my face, but yeah, I feel your pain. Yeah, yeah. So... If you wanted to use fat to power that protein synthesis process, you'd have to go through that delay. Mm, you have to liberate it. You have to put it in tissue. You have, or you have to put it in muscle. Or, and it, it burns more slowly, right? Um, kind of. Um, so it's it, only getting it uh, available in the body that makes you call it a slow fuel, right? So think about it. That's a storage mechanism thing, not an actual hundred percent. If you want to think about this from the bigger perspective. It's not exactly right, but carbohydrate is your immediate fuel source. Fat is your backup. This is why I can only store so much carbohydrate. The, the capacity is very limited with how much, it's limited by physical size of my muscle and my liver and my blood, right? The only other, if my muscle's Those full- are the three places it's stored, period. Three places. 
Give me ratios. I'm guessing the vast majority is in my muscles, unless I'm really small. You've got a, a couple of tablespoons in your blood total. Like, this is it, right? So if you run through the actual math, you probably have gone, wait a minute, I've got some blood done. And they said it was like 80. Okay, what that really means is the equivalent of a couple of tablespoons of total glucose in your body, in your blood. If you think about your liver, kind of this right side there, and you just, you know, if you ever had a whole liver, you pull it out, it's kind of like the size of a hand, you know, a little maybe a, a flattened softball or something like that in humans, you know, a little bit bigger. It's pretty big, but muscles everywhere. So it's physical dimensions wise. If you just take the ratio of physical size, that'll explain to you exactly much. So if you said, okay, my liver is about the size of my right glute. Well, every other part of your muscle then is storing uh, uh, glycogen all over the place, right? So we can store way more in skeletal muscle. And the more muscle I have, the more I can store. The more trained I am, uh, endurance trained, the more I can store. Hmm. So it, it scales that way. This is one of the reasons why you mentioned Peter earlier, uh, Atia, but um, you know, in the podcast I've done with him, we, we talked a lot about the importance of muscle for health. And one of the major factors there is it is your primary glucose storage place. People don't realize like this is the biggest place to store glucose and, and carbohydrates. So if you're worried about blood glucose levels or things like that, if you don't have enough muscle, um, you're just adding to the challenge of being able to handle and manage your glucose. So you want to put it there. Um, going kind of back earlier, when we were talking about you have to mobilize and liberate the fat. It's got to go into blood. It's got to go into blood. Then it's got to get into the tissue. Then it's got to go through the tissue into the cell. It's got to get into the cell. Then it's got to get into the mitochondria. And there are rate-limiting steps specifically on the cell wall of the mitochondria to be able to get it into that thing and then actually use it. Now, is fat slower at the mitochondrial cellular level than... So the beauty of it is, once you get into mitochondria, aerobic metabolism between carbohydrates and fat is identical. But what about getting into the mitochondria? Is that So slower? it's already in the cell tissue for carbohydrate. So you can stay outside of the cell, not have to worry... Uh, uh, using fat as a fuel source is 100% aerobic, meaning it requires oxygen carbohydrate is both anaerobic and aerobic. Mm. So you have way more flexibility. So not only is it stored in the actual tissue, but if you don't have the time to even wait for oxygen and you can't, don't want to wait for it to get into the mitochondria to go through the aerobic side of the equation, you just go anaerobically. You go right now. Now, it is a lot less efficient. So this is what we call anaerobic glycolysis, splitting lysis being splitting glycan being glycogen um, or glucose. It doesn't really matter. You're splitting glycogen or glucose. Boom, you're getting a couple of ATP, like two to four ATP total. Very small. When you take that molecule, though, and you put it through the aerobic side of the equation, so the second half, now you're going to get like 25, 28, 30 ATP. You take one molecule of fat for that entire equation, you're getting 300. Jesus. So you're going, it's, it is getting you way more packed because think about it this way. Glucose is six carbons. But if you had a, a triglyceride that was three fatty acids that had 15, 16 carbons each, you got 16, 16, 16, plus you got the three glycerol backbone. Well, you have so many more carbons to deal with. Every time you break the carbon, ATP, 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 ATP. So you just have way more carbon to break. So you're going to get a lot more pack for it, but it requires oxygen and it requires that mobilization and movement process. Anaerobic glycolysis can happen immediately it happens right now to round the story out have to have a signal have to have gene expression 
and then you're going to go through protein synthesis, right? There's an actual time component here. That signaling process happens within seconds, okay? And it is over. You stretch a muscle, then that cascade happens immediately. You go through a workout, you go through some sensor, uh, a recept- receptor is attached, signal happens, and that thing, that process is over in seconds to minutes. So if I were to biopsy you 25 minutes post-exercise, those signaling cascades are probably back to baseline. They're done already. That signal's over with. The gene cascade kicks on, and that is elevated, depending on which marker, something like three to four hours post-exercise. Now, the protein synthesis part is elevated still up to 48 hours post. So my point is saying, I don't necessarily have the time to wait because the genes are expressed almost immediately and the signal is already dead after a few seconds. So if I have to wait to mobilize and use fat, I'm going to slow down that process when it is ready to go and it is trying to, to get going. Such to say, it doesn't mean you cannot grow muscle in a low-carbohydrate state. And I'm certainly not making any claims about low-carbohydrate diets. This is like not what we're referring to at all. Um, but are you optimizing growth? Well, that's a different story entirely. So differences there between possible versus optimal. Okay. Uh, you have made a very bold assertion. In terms of my layman's understanding of carbohydrates versus fat, uh, the implications of what you just said is that um, me putting on fat doesn't really matter if my diet consists of high carb or high fat, doesn't matter. It's just total intake of carbon. So uh, what you just said makes some predictions. Let me go through them that I'm going to have a very hard time getting obese on a high protein diet if I'm not intaking fat and carbs. True or false? I would say true. Okay. So something called rabbit starvation. I tested this. Uh, When I got my leanest, I was basically eating protein only. It was miserable, by the way, and I was inflamed just an unimaginable amount. It really sucked. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I got lean. (laughs) Okay. So that's interesting. I mean, that's just an anecdote, but uh, it's interesting, certainly in keeping with what you just said predicts. but it also, I would say, by the way, on that point, that would be a pretty common finding that that will hold. That's yeah. Yeah. We, um, we have seen a ton of problems in inflammatory markers with folks that are, uh, tend to be very, very, very low on a particular, either nutrient, um, either macro or micro. So when you, when you pull things away like that, some people can be fine with it apparently. Uh, but the folks we've seen, they don't do well on things like that. Mm. Um, they may feel okay initially, but their biology is, is pointing the wrong direction pretty quickly. So I would say what you experienced uh, going on, it was basically like a protein, but very low carbohydrate, very low fat diet. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it was basically just boiled chicken breast and steamed broccoli for two years. And look, it wasn't it. Obviously I was taking in occasional fat, but it, it really was pretty rare. And yeah. it was- That'll, that'll um, mess you up. <laughs> yeah. My wife pulled me aside and was like, you- you are not fun to be around anymore. Like yeah. you need to change strategies. And before I went on the, the, cause I really wanted to get lean. And before I went on it, I said, look, I am, I'm hyper disciplined. So if I set my mind to something, yep. it does not matter the amount of suffering I'm going to keep going. 
And so I said, that means you have to be in control. If it gets to the point where it's gone too far, then just signal me and I will change. And so she did and, and ultimately had to find a Oh man, far this is like, you, you crack me up because you do things the hard way. I do things the hard way. That is a very uh, astute. We, we call that the road, uh, the robot mode. It's yes. Like, I like going in a robot mode. That's great. But if you're going to do that, you better make sure that that robot is pointing in the right direction. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't want to derail us and I will bring us back. But as a quick, no, 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 it's very interesting, at least to me. Uh, my wife has said, we. I finally had to decode her language. And the more I go into robot mode, the more she's like, I want my husband back. Yeah. But because I value robot mode and virtually everything except my relationships get way better the more time I spend in robot mode. I can't help but value my ability to stay in robot mode. Uh, but anyway, my wife keeps you just me need a, You just need somebody, somebody who's guiding that ship. The right that, way. Well, from a don't go too far, that would definitely be my wife. Eh, I wouldn't say go, not go too far, but I would say let's make sure we're getting there in the right path. Yeah, in terms of what's your goal, is the this strategy really the, the best way to get there? The tactics, yeah. yeah. like there, there's We can get people extremely lean. And, and not have to eat like that. Very interesting. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all US e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so sure. that that's where we're headed right now because the other prediction that what you just walked through made is that um, calories being equal it will not matter if I'm on a high fat diet or a high carb diet, 
that one breaks several of my assumptions. Uh, this is anecdotal, but let this be the jumping off point for your dismantling of my assumptions. If you give me somebody and say, uh, Tom, you can either control this person's diet or their exercise, and they are going to do exactly what you say, but you have to um, improve their body composition. Oh, yeah. So I have to reduce their fat and I need to positively impact um, biomarkers that would lead one to longevity. So things that occlude the arteries, for instance, that's going to be bad mojo. I would say, I don't care about exercise whatsoever. Just let me control their diet. And I'm only going to need to pay attention to one variable and 80% of people, I will get 80% of the way there through one variable. And that will just be blood sugar. And if I keep their blood sugar, call it 85 or less, they are going to stay a reasonable body comp, just period, end of story. Like I, I'm not even asking you how many calories they're eating. Could they stuff their face full of fat? Yes, but they probably won't. So um, it's really in my, my assumption is it's really only when you start elevating your blood sugar that you run into a cascade of problems. But that means that carbohydrates matter a lot. Okay, so I would say a couple of things. What you're what you're talking about is a question of practicality versus physiology. Okay. So the a lot of things you put on there are issues of well, this will be more practical. More people will do this; they'll execute it better. They'll get better results because they're um, they're adhering more, right? And if you look at any intervention for nutrition, adherence will be the number one predictor of success. So you're not wrong in that charge, right? To say if I can set somebody up for more adherence. I'm more likely to have success. That is absolutely the number one starting criteria. A diet not done is irrelevant, right? You can talk all the theory you want, but if they don't do it, it's completely irrelevant. That is separate from physiology. And I would say physiologically is very, very, very clear. Um, you can manipulate either one of these things and have success. So if you want to look at uh, chemical signaling, if you want to look at randomized control trials of outcomes, you're not going to see any difference in successful weight loss by manipulating carbohydrates more or fat more if protein is, uh, is held consistent, right? That, that's very, very clear scientifically. Again, though, what you feel like is more realistic for people who will execute higher, more success, that's a separate question. And again, as I argued a second ago, maybe more important. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, whether or not you can fundamentally base this exclusively on blood glucose, I think if you want to put this across 30,000 people, I think the mission you laid out there would probably be pretty successful. Actually, I'd say it's probably really successful. At the individual person, um, I'd say that's also something that's not really that important. So you can see tremendous progress in folks by not worrying about blood glucose at all. I've, I've actually encountered, we go back and forth in this. We'll use things like a, a CGM, Sometimes and sometimes not. Some people, it, it is really, really helpful in a lot of ways. And then other folks, it's just an utter disaster with, with what happens to them when they see that they get so fixated on it. I was going to say orthorexia. Is that the only... That that can be it. it uh, they just freak out. There's a lot of assumptions built into CGMs that are false. Um, so the assumption that you should just never be over a certain number and like things like that, we certainly go into that, but those things are all really wrong. So people will make all kinds of weird things and do things because their, their number went to a certain level one time. And, and so we're very cautious when we use CGMs. Other folks, it's, it's a game changer. It's a complete game changer. You, you throw that on them and you just walk away and then they're like, holy cow, 
and they just stop eating Doritos all day and stuff. And you're like, you know, sorry if Doritos is, is a sponsor. Is the problem there not? Is the problem with Doritos just that people overeat calorically? No, uh, you, you're never going to find things being a single explainer. So probably issues of overeating calorically, sure. Probably compromising, reducing other items that they should be eating that are now not coming in. So now you have fiber deficiencies or you have micronutrient deficiency or other issues there. So it's not just what they're eating, it's what they're now not eating instead that's coming in. Because this isn't tracking with my understanding of what you were saying. Uh, So when you say the difference between carbohydrate and fat for fat loss doesn't matter, does that uh, assume that you're not eating highly processed carbohydrates? Okay, when I say it doesn't matter, what I mean is, not that it's irrelevant. I'm saying you have options either way. That's really you, what I you mean. You can lose weight on Definitely. a high carb diet. Absolutely. You can lose weight very successfully on a high carb diet. You can lose weight very successfully on a, a high fat diet. Uh, I, I would say that there's, there's so many studies on this. Again, whether you want to look at the mechanistic data, whether you want to look at the randomized controlled trials, and they basically are all showing the exact same thing. Does that mean it's irrelevant and there's nothing else to consider? Absolutely not. There's thousands of things to consider. Methods are many, concepts are few. Very basic, fundamental concept. Calories are going to have to be accounted for, one way or the other. If you have a different method you like to to get to that calorie thing, you showed your method, great. You want to track and weigh all your food, great. You want to give another simple heuristic, just do this, just don't do that, great. Those are just different methods to get to fundamentally the same concept of calorie balance, right? Um, Whether you're saying, yeah, I eat this more food, so I'm more satiated, so I'm less likely to, okay, fine. Like those are just different systems to all get to the same spot. So I apologize if I said this earlier or didn't clarify, but it's not irrelevant. There's a ton of relevance to all those variables. It's just fundamentally, you're going to have to get to the same place. And if you get to the same place, you'll have the same net result. But there's a lot of different ways to get there, and some are more successful than others, and certainly many are more successful than others at the individual human level. There's no question some people respond better to different micro or macronutrient switches. Absolutely. Whether that is actual physiological, whether that is now behavioral, of, of course. All those options are on the table. If the strategy you'd like to employ to help people regulate is just simply monitor blood glucose, great. Sure. That could be effective. Um, if you're taking other approach and saying, I don't care at all about measuring blood glucose, but I'm going to have them weigh their food and we're going to have a great, that works too. All that stuff will work. Uh, it just depends on now we're at the level of, well, what other factors are we considering? Are we considering how their digestion feels? Are we considering how um, their food preferences? Are we considering their cultural aspects? Are we considering their income and their costs? Like, now those are all just different levels of nuance that we want to get into. Um, I'll give you an example. We just recently completed uh, a study on intermittent fasting, and we actually wanted to look at whether or not it did anything for muscle growth. And so people were really interested in this topic from a perspective of fat loss. But we were like, well, what about somebody who's trying to maximize muscle growth? Does the 16-8 intermittent fasting approach help muscle growth? Does it harm it? Or is it irrelevant? I can't share the exact results right now because it's in review. But what we what was very important to me is exactly what I'm saying. I don't want to just know the answer at the muscle level. 
but I want to ask them about their fatigue. I want to ask them about their digestion. I want to ask them about how hard they felt it was and all these things. And I can tell you this much, there's no clear cut winner here. There's never going to be. It is, well, okay, maybe this adds in muscle growth or doesn't, but it was harder to do. Or it, you know, gave them, made them more bloated. Or there's always just going to be pros and cons of these approaches, right? So it comes down to you saying which ones you want to optimize for and which of the downsides do you not care about or less important to you or don't affect you as much. That's the game you're constantly going to play. So when you talk about dietary stuff, when I kind of say laissez-faire, like it doesn't really matter what you do. What I just mean is fundamentally, you just got to get to the same kind of place and you'll get there. And then from there, you got to coach your people. Describe the same kind of place. Is that just In this particular instance, balance? yeah, would be calorie balance for fat loss. Like you're just going to have to get to a negative position. Hmm. That's just going to have to be how, how it goes. There is no other way to go about that. Again, different systems to get to negative calorie balance, but you're going to have to get there. That's like, it's kind of circular argument because one is actually just the definition like for the other. Hmm. So there's no really way outside that matrix. All right. I want to talk about if it fits your macros and the yep. idea that you can eat ah, whatever macros as long as sure. you're, um, you have a target, you're worrying about calorie balance, all that. But before we get there, I think we have to understand the mechanism by which you add muscle and the mechanism by which you lose fat. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started re- researching you for this episode, you really changed my understanding of how fat is actually liberated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in this interview, the idea of the glycogen being stored in the muscle, so it's really readily available versus fat, which is a backup mechanism, which has to be liberated first, make its way through the blood, all that is really helping me understand the sort of hows and whys of this all. But walk us through the fundamental nature of, um, I don't know which you think is right to start with, but walk me through the building blocks of building a muscle, walk me through the building blocks of losing fat. Um, and just to re-anchor everybody, because this I had never thought about it before that carbs and fat have more in common than protein has Mm. to carbs and fat. That's very interesting. That being more about nitrogen, the other two being carbon. I had never put two and two together, even though I knew, oh, if you're building muscle, like you, you can check the nitrogen levels in your urine. I just never stopped to ask why. Um, So yeah, mechanisms, please. Sure. We've laid a lot of the foundation here, so this shouldn't be too difficult for us to get through. Um, but really, you're breathing in O2, you're breathing out CO2, right? That carbon is coming again either from carbohydrate or from fat. And so really to answer your question, one of the ways we set up how we analyze our folks is, is I want to know four fundamental things. Number one, I want to know everything that goes in your body. So I want to know what you eat, what time you ate it, how much you ate it, where you got it from. I want to know where you get your drinking water from. I want to know what kind of toothpaste you use. I want to know how you're cleaning your tiles and your floor. If it goes on or in your body, I want to know about it. Number two, I want to know everything that comes out of your body. I want to take, we, we take fun. saliva, we take urine, we take blood and blood and blood. We take stool, we take mm-hmm. hair if needed. We take every single thing that comes out of your body, sweat, hair, all of it. There are different markers that are uh, better and different biological samples. Mm. So in, in my world, we don't treat, we don't, I don't treat anything. I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor, um, but I'm not going to develop you plans and protocols uh, based on labs. We do it based on humans, right? So how you feel is most important, right? And then four, how you perform. So how are you functioning? I take all those things and now I know exactly what's happening and I can create and find those performance anchors 
find those constructs or con, uh, constraints, and then I can actually set you your very specific plan and go. Why that matters here is all that's happening in your body is input in, input out. Okay, so fat then, when you're losing fat, has to come out of your body in one of a few places. It either has to come out in your feces, your urine, your sweat, your saliva, or your hair. But it's none of those places. The only thing I left off that equation is your breath. And so you use lose a very minimal amount of fat through your urine, some through your feces. You pee fat? You can pee anything, right? But we, we're basically, you might as well count that as zero. Interesting. Right? Little comes out of your stool. The overwhelming majority is coming out of your breath. Do you remember those chips that they put some weird thing in it that made you not digest fat? And so it was like, beware, may cause anal leakage. I was oh, so yeah. mortified by that. I never even tried them. The anal that. leakage thing is historic. Oh, God. Anyway, so yes, it can certainly, hopefully not a lot is coming out in your stool, but it can happen. Man, I wonder. It's been so many years since I thought about that. I would love to know what actually was in there. I will also tell you bad things happen if you take too much fish oil. Oh, it can, yeah. Woof. Or MCTs or Woof. any kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. Depends on how high you went on your mm. fish oil. There's a part of uh, medical physiology you go through in med school, and, and they'll teach you all about what happens with excessive fat intake, and especially in the form of oil. I found the upper limits. I'll yeah. just say that. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so it's mostly coming out uh, through your breath, and if that makes no sense. So we, we are losing fat by exhaling. That's right. That's crazy. It's nuts, right? But it is exactly what I explained earlier. You're breathing in O2 and breathing out CO2. The C is coming from carbs and protein. You cannot burn fat alone. It's just not possible, right? So you're, you're sorry, it comes out as carbohydrate or fat. I think I said protein a second ago. What I meant is those two. You can't burn fat alone. So it's coming from a combination of those two things. And the fundamental answer is it doesn't even really matter which one is being used for exercise. It doesn't matter which one is being used for exercise in terms of your fat loss. So people will really be worried about do, doing the types of exercise that burn the highest percentage of fat versus carbohydrate because they think that's going to aid in fat loss. It doesn't matter. If they had just called the the molecule in food something different than the molecule on your body, and I get why they didn't because they are the same. They are. But it gets really confusing when you mean dietary fat versus stored body fat. Okay, but So when actually you say it not, doesn't matter what you use, what do you mean? It doesn't matter what I use when I eat? It's not because your dietary fat is just another animal stored fat. Correct. It's the same thing. Yes, but when I'm trying to lose fat, yeah. the fat that I eat has implications in terms of priming my body as Definitely. to what to use for a fuel source. So when you're talking about this, because I've, I've heard you describe this mechanism before and literally, thankfully, you stopped and said, but that doesn't, burning fat does not mean you're losing fat. And I was no, like, no, what? No. Because I can be burning the dietary fat. Yeah, well, you can even be burning your own endogenous fat. Yes, but when people hear you say burn fat, I think, if they're anything like me, they just assume you mean off my love handles. You would think that so. That's not necessarily what No, it's mean. definitely not the case. So you have a difference in terms. One of them would be called oxidize. So are you oxidizing the fat? Okay, great. That means you're using it, using that oxygen to burn the fat as fuel. That's great. I'm oxidized. Does oxidizing imply that I am burning my own body fat or that's what I do to fat? I have- It actually doesn't matter whether you're using the dietary fat or your own endogenous fat. So you could eat a, a high fatty meal mm-hmm. and then you were go train right then, then your rate of fat oxidation would go up. Mm. But you've also increased fat intake 
So yeah, you're burning more fat, but you ate more fat. Does the does the fat have to make it out of the food into my bloodstream before I can burn it? It must. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. so I have eaten the fat. It's then not in the shape that I would recognize it from the animal. I'm assuming it's broken down in something. Triglycerides, free fatty acids. Yeah. And then yeah. that crosses in your blood, over In your blood, it's going to be free fatty acid Got floating it. around. Yep, so you ate it. You ate that wonderful, delicious fat, however it came. And it was in the stored form because it was in an animal stored form or a plant. doesn't matter, right? It's going to get into your belly. Your belly is then going to break down into the free fatty acids, put it into your bloodstream as the free fatty acids. It's the exact way that you take it from your storage and put it in your bloodstream as free fatty acids. Okay, that was, I was going to ask. I didn't want to interrupt. But if you took my blood, could you tell whether I was uh, releasing fat into my bloodstream from stored fat or whether I had just eaten it? Is there any difference or it is identical once it hits the Well, we would be able to, depending on the marker you look at, if you're looking at... Um, some particular markers, it'd be identical. We wouldn't be able to differentiate. But if we looked at other food particle stuff, you'd be like, oh, you just ate food. So it's kind of a cheat answer. Got but it. So there are other things going on in the blood if I've just definitely. eaten, so you can presume. You, totally. Got it. Yeah, okay. but fundamentally- But the fat itself is the same. If you want to give the- Because you say the same answer for blood glucose. I, I wouldn't know necessarily if we- You get your blood drawn. I wouldn't know if you just necessarily had, you know, some- carbohydrate meal right before it or if this is just your normal blood glucose you we wouldn't be able to from that marker alone mm-hmm. if i just looked at blood glucose levels I, I wouldn't be able to see okay but i have god this is fascinating i had never thought about this before but what you're saying is um when i because there's only two ways for me to get glucose in my blood if i understand this correctly i eat and then the carbohydrate is broken down or i break down my own protein through gluconeogenesis. You're shaking your head for those no, just listening. Okay, no, no. so how do I get, glu- what are the ways that I can get glucose into my bloodstream? Certainly, number one, you can eat it. Yep. Any form of carbohydrate, uh, whether that's in the form of, uh, so let, let me give you this real fast. I'll try not to take a tangent. When you have glucose in your blood, we call it glucose or blood sugar, okay? When we store that glucose, we call it glycogen. Okay, so the glucose is a six carbon molecule. If I stack a bunch of those six carbon molecules together and store them, Mm-hmm. then we call that glycogen. Yeah, sorry, I should have been more clear. Uh, so does it take a different form when uh, I eat it and it gets stored in the muscle? Or is it literally, because for instance, when you say I store glucose, I always think about it as being stored as fat. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. So this is, this, let me let me just hit with a little bit more chemistry here. So in your muscle, it is stored as glycogen. And in your liver. Is that a different thing than glucose? It is the, it is the exact, um, like imagine if we made this like physical thing. Mm-hmm. So imagine you- So could I say it's parked in the muscle? Because when yeah. I think of storage, I think of it transforming. No, no, no. Storage is not transformation. Storage is not transformation at all. It is literally storage. If it was, let's imagine this is Legos. So you gave me one Lego block mm-hmm. and there was, you know, six notches on that one Lego block. Each notch is a carbon. I have one Lego block. And that Lego block is glucose floating around, right? And then you said, okay, store that. Put that away. Put your Legos away. And you took it in the next Lego and you attached it onto it and the next Lego and attached it onto it. You could call that entire structure your Lego block. But each individual one is still its own block. It's just being stored more efficiently. So if your kid is putting away their Legos in their box and they just took all the Legos and dumped them in there, you wouldn't be maximizing the efficiency. If you store them and stack them on top of each other exactly the way they're built, you could get way more in that same box area. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm still so waiting for... That's glycogen. 
it is saying, yo, rather than just dumping a bunch of Lego blocks in our space, let's stack it together perfectly. Each one is still its own individual unit, but it is all perfectly stacked together. So if you want to break out and open up your your storage area and pull one Lego block out, you can. Mm -hmm. There's nothing different. That's only in the blood, liver, or muscle. Only in the muscle and the liver. Okay, and the blood is just It is only, it is never going to be packed together in the blood. It is only in that free forwarding. My bad. Yes. So in nature though, we have another word. So if we take muscle glycogen, if it's in an animal, we call it muscle glycogen. Mm -hmm. If it's in our liver, we call it liver glycogen. If it's in the blood, we call it glucose. In a plant though, we don't call it glycogen. We have a different term for it. You know what that is? Carbohydrate? Mm. Starch. Oh, okay. Yep, makes sense. That's what a starch is. So biologists- Same thing. In a plant, different name. Don't go nuts here, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to violate some stuff, but just as a framework here. We typically use what we call uh, those shorter forms of carbohydrate. So uh, monosaccharides is is glucose, fructose, galactose, things like that. You take polysaccharides, starch, uh, glycogen, things like that, right? Stored forms. There's monosaccharides, polysaccharides, disaccharides, and then all the way down. Uh, okay. Transportation and immediate ut- utilization is done in the monosaccharide form. So you're going to use fructose, glucose as fuel sources for the most part, plants and animals, right? You're going to use glycogen as a storage vehicle. Okay, that's the point. So in a plant, it'll say, yo, we're going to collect a bunch of sunlight and then we're going to breathe in carbon dioxide. The sunlight is where we get the energy from, and we're going to collect the material. The food they're eating is the air. So they're breathing in CO2, breathing out O2. They're collecting their carbons through the air. We can't go through that process. That's called photosynthesis. So our only way to get carbon is to eat the plant who just took all the carbon out of the air and stored it. Or the animal that ate the plant. Or the animal. Yeah, right. We have to eat the thing that did it, right? So now it's going to bring in those carbons one at a time it's going to stack them together and make the glucose molecule. Then that glucose molecule is going to be running around that plant and it's going to say, great, we brought in more carbon. We have enough to now store that current glucose that's floating around you. So go store that as a starch. They tend to go down, which means I'm going to store it in the ground, which is tend to be things like root vegetables. So a potato is a starch. Uh, Tubers are starches because they're putting all those glucose molecules together and they're burying it underground. If it wants to fruit then or flower, it's going to start breaking down that stored starch back into its monosaccharide, just like you take down your broken down storage or your storage of in the liver glycogen, and you need a little bit of it. You pull one Lego block out at a time, put it in your blood. It pulls one Lego block out at a time of its starch, puts it in the, the plant, sends it back up the tree, goes all the way up to the branches, and gets in the flower or the fruit in the form of a monosaccharide, which is why most of your fruits are actually fructose and glucose. That's the carbon cycle, right? If the plant wants to store it, it puts it in the root. That's why most root vegetables are starches. If it wants to put it in a more immediate access use, it turns it in back into a monosaccharide. That's why if you eat a banana or an apple that's not ripe yet, it tastes terrible because it is mostly still starchy. It tastes sweeter when it has converted those starches into fructose, and it is now a sweeter flavored monosaccharide. Okay, hold on. This is so interesting. So I get the root thing. That's their storage mechanism. Yeah. 
uh, for energy. The fruit will, and, and so they will use the energy stored in the root occasionally. Will they reuse the energy that they store in the fruit? I was no, because that. the fruit's gone. So it gets even more fun. So um, wait, isn't then fruit, because you said they store it in the fruit if it's available for immediate energy. I assume the fruit is a way for them to pass their seeds. There you go. Okay. Yep. So the idea is we're, we're exiting. We're, we're letting that thing go. So it, but, it, but when it's a root, they are, use, they are storing it for its own flowering purposes. To make more fruit. Yeah. Exactly. And on the way up the chain, by the uh, way. So same idea. Wow. It goes from a polysaccharide to a monosaccharide at the end, right? But on the way up, it goes to a disaccharide. And in some particular plants, you can stick a needle halfway through them and you can collect that. And we call that syrup. Mm-hmm. So that's why those are... This is so interesting. Right? This is why you're like, why, why the hell do some trees make this unbelievably sweet little thing that we can get out of it? Can uh, not all plants do all this? It's different, but you're getting the point here, right? So polysaccharide in the bottom stored, convert it into disaccharides, move it up the tree, get it all the way to the end, convert that into monosaccharides, make that a sweet, delicious tasting thing that then other animals will come eat to spread our seeds, put it in their digestive tract, excrete it later throughout the forest and get our seeds out there, right? Fascinating. We do the same thing. We say store our starch, our glycogen, and our liver and our muscle. Keep the optimal amount in blood so that we can power brain activity and transport it back and forth where we want. Don't go too high, don't go too low, right? You need more, great. We're just gonna kick it either out of muscle in the blood or out of the liver and in the blood. And so the way that you keep your blood sugar optimized is muscle and the liver constantly sort of dripping out glycogen or you eating your own food source to, to put it back in there. So those are the three ways that you can keep your blood sugar uh, elevated or or more consistent. So this is why, again, we say the more high-functioning skeletal muscle you have, the little bit better blood glucose control you have is because it's that storage depot that can say give or take. You have some extra to give it to me? Great, we'll take it. You need some extra? We can technically give it back. Um, the liver is probably doing most of the giving rather than muscle. Muscle is probably doing most of the taking. Hmm. Uh, but that's really where we're at. Now, when it comes to fat, this is the backup supply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. 
The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Okay, sorry, before you do that, I need to understand when glucose becomes fat. Because if I overeat glucose, it is going to become fat. And it's my understanding, perhaps erroneous, but it's my understanding that the way that the body pulls the uh, glucose out of my bloodstream, so preferentially the muscle will grab it if it needs it, brain will grab it if it needs it, liver will grab it if it needs it, but if none of them need it and it's in the blood, the blood's like, got, or the body knows, I got to get this out of the bloodstream and it's going to store it as fat. No. Not really. Really? What the hell? My whole world is crumbling. It's all been a lie, Andy. It what has are you been. talking about? Um, so that process you're describing is called de novo lipogenesis. So this is the formation of new um, fat out of non-fat sources. Conversion from carbohydrate, despite the fact that they're big, long carbon chains, it's not efficient. It's not as efficient as it needs to be. You're talking in the order of 5 to 10% is what's going to happen there. What's going to mostly happen is partitioning. Here's what that means. If you were to be in that exact scenario, we have excess blood glucose. Mm -hmm. You could convert some of that to fat and storage. Yes. Hard to do though, right? What's easier to do is just change the amount of of fat that you're burning Mm -hmm. and shift your metabolic energy demands more towards carbohydrate and lower on fat. So think about that now. If you say, look, making up a scenario, at rest, you're burning half of your energy from fat. Half of it's coming from carbohydrate. Yes. Now you have too much carbohydrate. Body says, yo, 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 we have excess carbohydrate. It's a pain in the ass to store it. It's full. Pain in the ass to convert it into new fat. Just burn more carbohydrates and start burning less fat. So shift my bias towards more carb burning. And, and there's really less- that much flex in the system. That it was way easier than converting an entire dude, molecule. If I live off of 5,000 calories of pixie sticks, there's no fat. But I thought so, that person would get fat. Oh, that person will get fat. But how? They're shutting down fat burning. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily adding- That's what to- I mean. So there is that much flux in the system? Oh, there's definitely. There's so much going on. Totally. That if I just start cramming my- Wait, but- uh, Okay, so if, I, if they stop- burning fat, fair enough. But if they're only intaking sugar, mm-hmm. there's, there is no, okay, so you're, this makes, everything makes a prediction. If I understand what you're saying correctly, which I may very well not, but if I understand what you're saying correctly, the person that eats only pixie sticks, they are, are they going to get fat? Yes. How are they going to get fat? They stop stop burning fat, but they're not intaking anything other than glucose. Sure, but they're not getting rid of anything else. Uh So their fat fat, uh, reduction is going nowhere, right? They have no fat burning. There is some de novo lipogenesis. You can do that process. They start sweating at some point. Like at some point, something has to give. Yeah. Do they just die? Like what? Because you're you're you've you've talked about this. Yeah. The body will regulate the life out of blood sugar. It Definitely. doesn't. It can't have the blood sugar. It's does not toxic. want that. I don't know what word to use. 
but it will it will gum up literally gum up your system. The blood uh, cells start sticking together. It's inflammatory it's at that high of a level. Bad. Yeah, it's not good. For sure. So, man, I always thought that that you pulled the glucose out of the bloodstream and put it into fat. Wow. Again, that can happen, right? Mm-hmm. So there but is it's very hard, super inefficient. So we're probably not, not the best survive way survive doing that. Yeah. So the best way is to simply flex up and down, as as you called it. Where are we getting our fuel sources from? But and, how are they going to keep getting fat? Well, they're going to continue to add to that mass, right? So any extra calorie is going to go somewhere. And so if if you're really going to that extreme where literally fat intake is sort of zero, right? Every energy, uh, every amount of energy they're expelling is coming directly from that carbohydrate, right? Yes. That's all coming in. Any extra small amount of uh, lipogenesis that can occur is just going to add to that total sum. Mm-hmm. So even if that is a small amount, if you're literally taking this to the, the uh, reduction of absurdum here, and that is zero, zero fat burning, a small amount of de novo lipogenesis is going to result in a lot of fat gain over enough time. Wow, but it really does have to go like that. Now, that I'm not aware of any studies that have taken it to like an incredible extreme like that. Mm. So perhaps when you get to certain levels, that percentage increases from like 5 or 10%. Um, but in, in most normal circumstances, people aren't that extreme. Yeah, no, and, and look, I get that. And I understand that this is very much just a thought exercise, totally. but it, it's helping me map the realities of the biology. Yeah, it goes the other direction too, by the way. Um, if you were to go on a very low carbohydrate diet and go on a very high fat diet, that doesn't mean you store extra fat, mm. right? Because the opposite equation would be like, well, wait a minute. That, like we, we tried that game 40 years ago, right? I think that wall's over. Uh, eating more fat, again, if calories are balanced, does not result in additional fat mass gain for the exact same reason. What you're just, just simply, burning fat. you switch over. And this is also why um, some of the marketing behind that side of the equation is um, confusing, give it at the most charitable term, because uh, I can be burning more fat, but that doesn't mean I'm losing more fat. All I've done is I've shifted my metabolic balance from carbohydrate oxidation to fat oxidation. Great, fine. Doesn't mean necessarily you're going to lose more fat. Um, doesn't mean necessarily anything else about performance either. Folks can perform at a very high level physically even on a moderate amount of carbohydrates or low amount of carbohydrates if their calories are high enough. So you won't won't necessarily even lose performance by going on a small to low amount of carbohydrates, uh, depending on the exact sport. Some sports are maybe more influenced, but um, just because you're not eating enough carbs doesn't mean your brain won't function, right? Or things like that. It's like, oh, I need carbs for, you know, or I'll have no blood glucose. That's not true either, right? So we've seen this equation play out on both sides. You have the flexibility but it wouldn't work, it wouldn't work only one way, right? So it wouldn't work just high fat or just uh, high carbohydrates. If it's true on one side, it's it's going to be true in the reciprocal as well. Would it not be easier to get fat eating fat? Because at least I know that can be stored as fat. So even if I'm in burn mode, um, if, if I'm in, okay, I'm intaking way too many carbohydrates, so I'm just eating pixie sticks. Again, I, I get yeah. that that's a, an absurd thought experiment. But if I'm just eating pixie sticks and I'm not intaking fat, very little um, fat will be created from the carbohydrate itself, from the glucose. Um, but some will. Okay, that stacks up. But 
other than that, like I'm just burning. So it just becomes that every little bit adds to my body. Um, still feels like something is going to break down there if you overeat, but setting that aside on the fat side, if I am, I, I'm only intaking fat. So now I switch over and my body's like, okay, I'm just going to burn this because it's all I'm getting. Um, but I, I assume that there is an easy path from dietary fat to stored fat. Is that not true? Is there an easier path from dietary fat to stored fat? Yeah, it's it's a direct route there, but it's still not going to matter if total caloric expenditure is balanced. Yeah, no, that I understand. Yeah. I'm, so what I'm holding in my head is uh, a morbidly obese person. Yep. And I I would have predicted that that morbidly obese person is closer and closer to eating pure pixie sticks. But what I hear you saying is actually that's probably not true. What they're doing is they're obviously over consuming calories, mm-hmm. but the calorie that they're having the easier time storing is fat. And so what's going on for them, I think, is what your hypothesis predicts or your theory, because I'm sure it's well-tested, predicts is that um, they are eating so much carbohydrate that their body switches over to just burning carbohydrate. So every bit of fat that they get, and they're probably getting a lot, is stored as fat. Cool. That that sequence makes sense to me. Um, the sequence that now I'm having a bit of a hard time wrapping my mind around is they're not eating carbohydrate, so the body starts burning fat, but they're still over-consuming calorically. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like it would be easy to shuttle the excess fat into fat cells. No? Yeah. So if you want to look at folks who are excessively fat, mm-hmm. okay, you'll see actually problems on the carbohydrate side of the equation. You'll see problems on fat equation. If you look at a standard American diet, they are going to be very hypercaloric on both of those. Mm-hmm. And what typically happens, and we do this in my nutrition class, I've been doing this for 12 years, where I have all the folks track their nutrition. What is obnoxiously clear, it's very rare, very rare for any of my college students to ever hit even close to the minimum RDA recommendations for protein intake. Never even come close to it. It, it would be one or two people per 40-person class that even hits the minimum RDA numbers, which I think are way too low. They're eating way too much of fat and carbohydrate. That's that's the issue here. So could you find folks who are eating too much fat? Yes. That's easy to come by, right? If you are looking at any of the accessible food things, they tend to be very, very high in fat, right? So fast food, any of these things. Carbohydrates are even more accessible. Uh, you go to any vending machine, it's going to be mostly carbohydrate-based things, right? You're not going to find any protein there. You know, and maybe maybe they have some high quality protein bars, but that's the best you're going to hope for, right? And so you have accessibility problems on both sides of that equation. I, it would be, I think, irresponsible to blame it, which is not what you did, but just to clarify, to blame it on either one of those as the primary uh, cause for excess calorie intake. So if their carbohydrates are in check and they're eating more fat, going to be a problem. If their fat is in check and they're eating too much carb, going to be a problem. You're going to find people across our 350 million Americans that are violating that in the droves across all of that spectrum. So I, I don't know, like, I'm not sure what the, it's, I guess I'll say, this is kind of why I'm generally like, I'll just say laissez-faire again. Because I'm like, if you're eating too much, I don't really like, for 350 million of you, there's a hundred of you doing it this way, a hundred of you doing it that way, a hundred million, you're both doing it wrong. 
they've got big problems on both sides of the equation. If you want a solution, okay, great. Now we're talking tactics. We know where we have to get to. I think it's generally best to flag yourself against protein for all the reasons we talked about. And then whatever other system helps you personally, there will be hundreds of millions of people who function better on this system or that system or anything else because there's so many of us. And now it's coming down to things like practicality, execution, adherence. And if you want to make arguments that some systems are more or less effective than others, great, we can do that. But fundamentally, like at this level of physiology, it's not super important um, at the global scale, if that makes sense. It does because they're all making a fundamental mistake. But from my own understanding of biology, I have another question, which is who's going to get fatter? The person that... um, and let's assume calories are the same in either scenario. The person that eats a all carbohydrate yep. and the person that eats all fat, who's going to get fatter? If they're both eating 10,000 calories a day, let's say, and they're sedentary. If you're going to lock in calories and you're locking in protein, I would say you're going to have very minimal differences between the two groups. Hmm, interesting. And I we have evidence on that. Understand. Yeah, because uh, again, if you look at whether you want to uh, pull these um, randomized control trials where they take people through this and they put them on very high carb or very low, they get to the same place. Okay, so the mechanism by which the uh, glucose overconsuming person gets fat is um, that the little bit of lipogolysis, I forget what you call that, the, the turning uh, glucose into fat, mm-hmm. that, what is it called again? De novo lipogenesis. Okay, I'm never going to remember that. Uh, lipo, lipo, like lipolysis, yes. like fat, like lipid. Mm-hmm. Genesis is making of creation, yep. so it's creation of fat. If it was lipogenesis, I could get behind it, but you throw another de word. De novo, de novo, new of new. Got so it. you're making new fat. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, that just seems like it would be a much slower process. But you're saying no. I'm gonna let go of this. Audience. Well, want to punch me? Um, I don't know. I think this is pretty fun stuff to talk about personally. To hell with them. They don't I like just it. can't wrap my head around um, how that isn't. It slow. depends on what you mean by time, right? So are we looking at this at the end of a 16-week trial or a six-month trial or a six-year trial? So um, what, yeah. With six years down the road, like is a little bit of speed months. difference not, not going to matter, right? Really? Yeah, it's just like that's fast enough. Mm. If you want to look at like a six-week change, you might pick something up. Six-day change for sure. But what you're talking about generally is is years of work here. And so by that point, subtle differences and in speed are, are going to be equated for. Mm. Very, very interesting. Okay. So uh, I legitimately feel like my understanding of fat just leapt forward. Um, give me the same breakdown now on muscle. So um, unlike fat, which does not require a stressor to force my body to, well, you're going to say with adding muscle, it's unique and that I have to go work my ass off in the gym. I am never going to, I can't just eat a bunch of protein and add a bunch of muscle. I wish. Not true. Really? What? Totally not true. So Arnold Schwarzenegger could get to his size no. just by cramming chicken breast. No, 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 no. I didn't say maximize. <laughs> I didn't say optimize. You said you can't add muscle by just so eating protein. So if I just definitely like can. my protein. 100%. Really? 100%. How much? Give me a percentage. 2%? 15%. Oh, you mean terms of total muscle mass? Yes. Well, it would be an asymptote. So whether I don't you, know what that means. Um, meaning the f- first minute you do it, mm-hmm. it's going to be much higher. By day five, 
That'll be lower by Wildly month five. Returns. Total. Well, Got yeah, it. of course. That's right? what asymptote means. Well, it's asymptote is a is a line that goes sharper, more vertical as you get closer to the end. Somebody else's over time is how they summed it up. Okay, yeah. Anyway, got it. Yep. Um, diminishing returns is is another way to. That's an asymptote, right? Understood. So, uh, this is classic, classic data from probably the mid nineteen nineties, looking at protein synthesis. And what you'll see is is some cool things. If you simply do a bout of resistance, okay, we'll, we'll back up. At all times, you are actually going through protein synthesis. So you're making new proteins right now. You're also going through protein degradation. So anabolic is when the net result, the protein balance, is positive. Catabolic is when the protein balance is net negative, right? So right now I could biopsy you. You would be going through some protein synthesis and you would be going through some protein breakdown. At rest, though, most likely you're going through more breakdown than you are synthesis. So your protein balance is probably net negative, which means you are technically catabolic right now. If it was the opposite, you'd be anabolic. Okay, great. So one of the things that happens is when you go through a bout of exercise, strength training, you go from a net balance of negative to a net balance of positive. Now, it's not much, but it is technically positive. The exact same thing happens by just eating protein. That is enough alone. Eating a bolus of protein right now would take you from a net negative to a net positive in this next few minutes to hours, without question. If you then do a bout of exercise and eat the protein, the effects are additive. So you take the exact amount of benefit you got from protein, the exact amount of benefit, they stack on top of each other, and you get a double bump there. If you add in carbohydrates to that meal, it is another additive effect. So you get up there, right? Now, that's acute. That is like literally right now we go do it, we biopsy you, you go do that intervention, and I biopsy you after that. The protein synthesis process is not necessarily 100% predictive of net muscle gain eventually, right? There's, uh, science is not perfect. So just because I can measure the rate of incorporation of new amino acids in you, that's not the exact same number. So you asked for a percentage number. If I told you it increased protein synthesis by 25%, that would not mean you gain muscle 25%. Yeah. It is, a, it is a small number, and there is no actual good relationship between that protein synthesis number and the resulting amount of whole muscle you'll have eight weeks later. There's no number to give on that one. Um, it wouldn't equate. In fact, the protein synthesis numbers are going to be greatly exaggerated. Um, I'm going to go so far off track here, but it's your job to hold, pull me back in, in a second. This is a really good, another, this is a PSA. It's my turn to give a PSA. When you start going into to molecular biology, folks, those numbers do not translate into whole human existence. And what I mean is, if you go to protein synthesis, I just gave you the example, a 25% increase in protein synthesis may result in a 3% increase in muscle growth eight weeks later. You go back up the chain and you go to cell signaling. If I was measuring um, the gene expression and I saw a, a 20% increase in gene expression, I would say that basically nothing happened. Some molecules need to go up three or 400% before it's actually physiologically relevant. So you can see a paper, somebody can post something or share something and tell you, oh, this mechanism, this gene, this uh, signaling activity increased by 80%. And that can be total bullshit. 
The science could be great, but it could mean absolutely nothing because we know that that actual marker needs to be up 300% before it's clinically meaningful. And so this is why when we say things like be very careful of mechanism and don't let mechanism be more important than whole outcomes, if we have whole outcomes. If we don't have whole outcomes, meaning how much stronger do they actually get? How much longer do they actually live? How much more muscle when we measure the actual muscle mass? Those are always more important than molecular mechanism. If we don't have those, we can look towards mechanism. That's great. That's insightful. If I'm creating a drug, fine, look towards mechanism. I don't have whole body data. But don't let people trick you with these molecular numbers because they they, they, they don't scale to human existence. Um, if that whole little tangent sort of makes sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. So, okay, the punchline is that I'm going to have a hard time eating my way there. It does at a cellular okay. level, it really does have a, a it does a response, but I'm still going to have to go get the additive benefit of um, you don't have actually to actually lifting. If you uh, what do you uh, mean by that? Th- think about a sumo wrestler. Mm-hmm. Do you think they have more or less or the same amount of muscle mass as you and I? I think they have a lot more, but I don't think they would ever get that just from eating. I think they have to train. Now it may not be with weights. Sumo wrestlers are not really traditionally lifting weights uh, okay fighting they're in okay, there like okay i'll give you i'll thing. give you a better example pick the random person on the street that weighs 300 pounds yep more or less muscle than you and i more no doubt not doing a single thing of but exercise they're carrying all that fat okay they're walking right you get a little bit of there but mostly they're sedentary so is the amount of walking you 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 spent 20 minutes trying to convince me you have to train your ass off to lift to gain, gain muscle yes. and now you're also making the argument that just walking around Damn you, Andy Calvin. It's not stacking up, right? It's really interesting, man. So, it's both, right? You're correct. You walk around with a 150-pound backpack on, mm-hmm. that's going to stimulate some muscle growth eventually, right? But you're saying that the their muscle mass is more attributable to just the massive amount of calories. I'm not saying necessarily protein? more. has to be protein. Ca- protein. I'm saying it is some part. Uh-huh. Is some part I actually have I can, people looked at this? Are there numbers to give on this? Uh, in terms of what number? Uh, the amount of muscle that an obese person adds. Okay. Um, all right. So check this out. I'm trying to decide how much I can tell you on this one or not uh, because we have a. N- because this is like secret. This is like alien. Uh, no, it's just science. You're not supposed to talk about results while they're in review. Ah. I thought you were thing. just going to say you're not supposed to talk about results. <laughs> the first rule of science, you don't talk about science. Yeah. Got it. Here's okay, what I can understood. say. Um, so my colleagues and I have, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to apologize to my co-authors right now. It's impact theory. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go is. above and beyond, right? So if you look at the national databases, so whether the, there's a thing called the UK Biobank, uh, there's one here in America called NHANES, and these are these national databases. Uh, these are 10 to 20, 30 year studies where they collect people every single year and they put them in and they make these data openly available. And if you look at things like that, you will see that muscle mass has kind of an inverted U uh, regarding mortality risk, such that if you are under muscled and you add muscle mass, your mortality risk goes down. And then if you add too much muscle, it is detrimental. Um, there. That does not stack up to me at all doesn't make any sense, right? There's just no way adding muscle mass is deleterious outside of very rare bodybuilders and things like that. But these these are not the folks in these national databases, right? These are Mayo Clinic folks and things like that. And so my colleague, Tommy Wood and I and Dan Garner 
And some other guys dove in and said, I don't know if this is true. So we ran some modeling against these things. And one of our papers is in review right now. And one of the things that we found was if you look at the association between strength and muscle mass in these databases, you will basically see none. You will also see that these folks have almost no connection between their muscle mass and their physical activity. Meaning the folks in these groups added their muscle mass, not through physical activity, Hmm. which says they added it somewhere else. Food. By being larger, you tended to have more muscle, which made you at a higher risk of dying. It had nothing to do with the muscle mass. We did, though, see an association, a direct association between the strength training and brain health, which is the first finding really ever to find a direct causal link between strength training and brain health, not mental health, physical brain health. In addition, um, what's called the strength residual. And so if I take your muscle mass and I look at how strong you should be, just based on your muscle mass, again, big database stuff, And then I actually measure your muscle mass. The residual is the difference between your predicted strength at that given muscle mass and your actual strength. The farther you are off that line, then the higher your risk of of death becomes. Hmm. So there's a standard for the amount of strength you would expect with muscle mass. And are you saying that people that gain their muscle mass through just massive caloric intake, they get the mass, but they don't get the strength? And that so these people are not the way that we phrase it scientifically is they're not accruing their muscle mass from training. That's what's happening. I don't know how they're doing it, but there's not a lot of options left. Mm. Um, so that going back to your initial question, I don't know what number that is. I don't know what protein these folks like. We could go back and I guess probably run that pretty quickly. But the point is, if you eat more, and even if you don't exercise at all, you're going to add some muscle. It's going to be there. Now, are you adding all lean muscle? No, 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 no. Um, Are you adding some muscle though? Yeah. Are you adding mostly fat? Yes. This is not a good way. Um, Similar note, if you're trying to gain muscle and you want to gain lean muscle, which means you want to gain as much muscle as you can with the least amount of fat gain, what you don't want to do is eat excessive calories. And so the typical number we'll say is like maybe 10 to 20% calorie increase. Don't do the whole thing of like, oh, my standard calories are 2,000 a day, but I'm trying to bulk up, so I'm going to eat 6,000 calories. Great. If you're willing to have a whole bunch of fat come along for the ride, like go for it. If you want to add as much lean muscle, like you're probably looking at a 500 calorie increase, maybe making sure protein's super high, training that high. That's probably going to put you, now that there's actually um, a couple of studies that are being run right now trying to figure out like what that exact percentage is, but those data are not out yet. But it's probably something in that neighborhood of 20 or so percent caloric increase um, rather than like what some folks will do, which is actually like a doubling or even tripling of their calories. So all that to come back to the original point of, yeah, just eating protein probably does add to a lot of muscle growth. Hmm. Um, it's also adding protein alone is not going to bring a lot of fat along for the ride either. So it's, it's a pretty fail, like easy way to go about it. One gram per pound of body weight is a starting place. You would have no issue going way higher than that, though. So I, I would typically say if you are a hard gainer, one of my first stops would be we're going way up in protein. We're going to do some other stuff, timing-wise, nutrition, and just other things. Um, 
training wise course, but going way up in protein is like there's a very low risk potential for reward. From a protein perspective, does animal versus plant protein matter at all? Yes, everything matters. Um, where it starts to matter is when you are below or not as sufficient. Where it matters the most is when you're below or not as sufficient protein intake. When you're at that one gram per pound or higher, those things start to matter a lot less. Hmm. Uh, in fact, there's a, a study came out very recently in the last few months directly comparing this. And once you hit that number, they saw virtually no difference in amount of muscle gained over the animal versus plant protein. Um, which is to say you have options. Um, if you are uh, like my students and you're eating you know, 60 grams of protein a day, 80 grams of protein a day, the protein quality and the protein um, type starts to matter a lot more. So my general recommendation is if you want to be very diligent and pay attention to your food intake and really plan things out, then a plant-based approach can be fine. If you want to just not worry about it, though, just eat a ton of plant-based protein, and you're going to be fine, most likely, as much as we can tell, um, if, if that's the strategy you're trying to take is mm. plant-based. Man, so fascinating. Okay, talk to me now about I want to be optimal. I want to add like real quality muscle. Yeah. I want to get strong. Um we talked earlier about some of the protocols in terms of 20 to 25 yep. sets per muscle group per week. That all makes sense. Um, give me a little bit more information about the protocol, especially as it relates to diet. Yep. Great. So setting that protein out as a minimum number there, probably even going higher way, on, on that again. So I eat a lot of eggs, Yep. egg whites, uh, whole eggs only, chicken breast like if i'm uh if i'm open to animal protein so assume i'm not trying to do um if plant is better for adding muscle definitely let me know uh but i'll eat whatever source of protein you tell me i should whey protein casein yep. whatever i'll do it um but what's that optimal like thing sure we actually ran that study though uh, egg white versus whole eggs hmm. <laughs> ran through that thing. Uh, in general, many similar findings. This was only one study, by the way. We'll probably need this to be repeated with different circumstances. There's just very limited things you can ever glean from one paper. But in that particular case, uh, the whole eggs outperformed the egg whites. Interesting. Even though I'm going to intake a lot more calories per gram of protein because of the fat. Yeah. But you also now have a lot of the nutrients coming along for the ride. You also have fat-soluble vitamins that are needed, and you're having the fat. Um there's more calories. You're trying to go up in the scale. Um, so if you wanted to go egg white only, that's fine. It could totally be done. But uh, I don't worry about that too much. I mean, if you want to do a thing where you have a handful of uh, whole eggs and then add some egg white to that to, to, to increase there while keeping calories under control, that's a strategy as well. I typically am just mostly a whole egg uh, sort of person. And then I will keep my fat a little bit lower in other places so that my protein can stay high. Um, to not go, to, again, too excessively high in calories. So what you're going to want to do is, is to set that protein marker as set number one. Then you need to make sure that your micronutrients are under control. So if we have any blood work to go off, we're going to get all that stuff dialed in, whether that is from whole foods and or supplementation stuff, ideally mostly from whole foods. That's the target, right? Let physiology do what it does. What do you think about protein powders? Totally fine with them. Love them. Uh, absolutely love whey. It tends to be very digestible. It is very practical. It is very uh, transportable. So we can use it on the road when we have other limitations and things like that. It tends to make it easier for people to hit their protein targets. Uh, and it's it's very, very effective for, for muscle growth. 
It's also not required. If you hate it, you don't have to use it at all. Um, we will use it pretty often unless somebody requests not to for all those practical reasons. It is no more magical outside of the fact that it's very easily digested and absorbable, um, but whole foods can get you there as well, no problem. Um, if your total protein intake throughout the day is equivalent, then your protein timing doesn't matter that much. So it doesn't matter that you have your protein immediately post-workout or things like that. As long as by the end of the 24-hour period, you get to the same total amount of protein, you're good. And so that's when I say like, it's easily digestible, fast absorbing, things like that, great. But if you don't like it or have some reason why you don't want to use it, no problem. We can get there through Whole Foods just as easy. Or the inverse. If you're just like, yo, like I love it, great. Um, <laughs> I certainly have seen people that are, you know, five to six servings a day of that um, easily. Whoa. Like you can get there. Like I don't think you necessarily need to, but um, we also deal with some professional athletes that are 300 pounds. So that the numbers are a little bit different for them. But that's even for moderate people, 185 pound, 200 pound sort of folks. So um, I just see it as a viable option. We consider it to be powdered food, basically, and nothing really more than that. So highly effective. Um, Protein and total calories there, micronutrients getting where it needs to be for your unique physiology as we were to go. We need to have enough carbohydrate to support training. Um, and then to support and maximize recovery. Because if we're going to be training harder, we want to not just do the bare minimum, we want to maximize recovery. Um, so what you're looking at there in terms of numbers, probably something in the ballpark of three to six grams per kilogram of body weight, roughly, that would be a carbohydrate number. So if you weigh you know, 180 pounds, um, you're probably in looking at the neighborhood of 350 grams of carbohydrates a day, like plus or minus, wow. something like that. Um, if you're training really, really hard, some of our like our, our competitive uh, UFC fighters, we're training multiple times a day. Six, 700 calories or six, 700 grams of carbohydrate a day is totally normal. Jesus, just because the the amount of um, well, they're training high intensity hard. workout that they're doing. Yep. We also now, have do folks- Do you have keto athletes? I don't think- we have any at the current moment. No. Because it's not very effective? I can't ever remember a circumstance where I told somebody who's not on a ketogenic diet that they needed to go on one. And we certainly had plenty that came in and said, this is what I want to do, help me do it better, which we have no problem. I'm not going to talk them out of that. Mm-hmm. That's what they want to do. Um, but I, I, I have not ever seen that. And I can't honestly envision myself ever taking an athlete and saying, you need to go on a ketogenic diet. Because the rate at which you can liberate fat yeah. and spark it well, is slow. Well, even just from a f- performance perspective, um, there's no evidence whatsoever that is performance enhancing. Hmm. So now I'm changing your diet. Even for endurance? No, I've never seen any data to support that. Um, if somebody said that they feel like they perform or had data, I'd believe them. Physiology is physiology. Um, we don't also work with endurance, like ultra endurance runners or anything like that. Um, just candidly, we don't, not that I wouldn't, I just haven't had a lot of those come across our desk. Probably handful, maybe. Um, in that case, I would think about it more seriously. But for the sports we typically work in, the NHL, the NFL, um, Major League Baseball, things like that, it's, it's not going to be a great fit for those folks. Uh, unless they, again, came in really hell-bent on doing it. We'd help them get better, but I'm not going to change. Uh, it's a very hard thing to change to. 
there's going to be an adaptive phase. I'm going to miss six weeks, six months of high, high quality training to just get them right back to the same performance. Uh, doesn't make any sense to do that. So for non-athletes though, boy, there's a ton of potential sense to do that. If, if that's an easier system for you. Um, on the carbohydrate thing as well, we also have people that do very well on much lower amount of carbohydrates, 200 grams, 150. I personally, I don't see any drop in performance with my own training and um, in my own ability to add muscle mass, even at like 100 grams a day. I'm, I'm totally fine there. Uh, I don't feel any drop in performance. I'm not obviously training as hard or as much as our pro athletes are, um, but I have no issue putting on muscle at that low of a number. So it can be anywhere up and down. Um, and then basically you fill in fat behind all those things. So once you set protein, once you set carbohydrates, you can fill in fat. You do want to make sure you don't go too low. Oh, that, that can be a problem. So if you're getting that area of concern, like we'll, we'll step in for sure. Uh, being too low will be problematic. Um, being too high is only really an issue of just gaining weight too fast but there's really no harm to having extra fat. Um, there's lots of many important benefits of having fat in the diet for muscle growth. Mm, for sure. Have you seen people on a hard, a high carb diet, regardless of exertion, have inflammatory issues? Depend, define high. Uh, north of 300 grams. Mm, not necessarily. In general, I wouldn't see that. If you're, if you're looking at more of like, if you're north of five to seven grams per kilogram body weight, and you don't have any physical activity, then there I would be much more likely to see an association with that. Um, that is also to say, I don't think many people have reason to be that high. They're not training very hard. Whether or not it's causing additional inflammation or not, um, it's certainly not necessarily needed. Hmm. So I, I would not, even for our folks that, like in our executive program that maybe don't exercise much, um, I'm, I'm not putting them at 600 grams carbohydrate and if they are, I'm probably trying to talk them out of that. Um, even if their inflammatory markers look fine, like I'm probably pulling them down on that pretty good. Why would you want to pull them down? What's the knock-on effect you're worried about? It is very easy to overconsume carbohydrates because of availability. So my concern would be in that direction. Um, we're also going to be checking for other markers um, of dysfunction. If they're totally fine, as I said earlier, like we don't coach labs. We coach people. If they feel great, if their performance is great, and by performance, I mean their physical performance, their cognition, their focus, their energy, their ambition, all that is exact. Their sex drive is all where they want it to be, and they feel amazing. And they're at 600 grams of carbs a day, like, totally fine. I have no issue with that. If they don't feel great, though, or have something going on, and the other things we tried aren't working, then I might say, all right, let's pull the carbohydrates down a little bit because uh, you don't have that energy demand. So why be there? Lastly, if they're at that number and they're not hypercaloric, that probably means something else is very, 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 very low. And that would be more of my concern. Not that the carbohydrates are evil, but the fact that it's taking the place of something, either fat is way too low uh, or hopefully not protein. Makes sense. Earlier, you mentioned that weightlifting was good for brain health. Why? So I can spit out to you some different mechanisms, but why it's actually mechanistically improving brain health, I don't necessarily know. Very intriguing. Okay, I have to ask this question. The, the thing that has held me back in developing my own physique 
uh, nothing has slowed me down more than injuries. Mm. I, I know it's going to be impossible for you to diagnose, but when you see people that have um, routine injuries, what is your sort of go-to checklist for figuring out what's causing the problem? So number one, you want to start actually Occam's razor here. If your shoulder hurts, you're probably doing something with your shoulder it doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Right now, Fair. what is that case? I mean, look, I would love to tell you, well, there's this like secret hidden stressor in your immune system. The reality is you're probably doing some shit with your shoulder that it doesn't like. That's going to solve the overwhelming majority of people's problems. Now, we have a quest. Now we're going on a little uh, a game going, okay, why? Now, is the pain localized? Is it there? Is the injury in the same spot of the pain? Yes or no? Okay, we're going to find that out. What's causing the pain? I can, just like earlier in our practice, like we, we don't resolve symptoms. I don't really go after symptoms. We go after, if we can, what's causing the symptoms. Sometimes you have to remove symptoms to allow you to then work backwards. So no problem. But the reality of it is, I'm not just going to say put an injection in there. Not that I can. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. But I wouldn't advise just resolving the pain. Don't just take Advil, blah, blah, blah. If you need to right now because you can't work, you can't sleep, cool, no problem. But that's not your long-term solution. You're just masking the pain. We need to work backwards and figure out why is the pain there. Is it actually there in the thing? Let's just say your shoulder. Or is it actually uh, an injury you had to your, to your neck? Is it an injury you had to your foot? What happened that caused some sort of altering of positioning or movement or stress load that then resulted in a net chain up into your shoulder? That's almost certainly the cause of dysfunction, right? It typically is an acute injury or something like that that leads to some sort of com- compensation pattern that then results in wear and tear somewhere else, right? It, it's it's uh, four tires on a car. And if you have 80% of your weight in the back left one, it just wears down but the problem is not the tire. You can keep replacing the tire all you want, but until you figure out the car is off balanced, you're going to keep wearing something down there, right? And then the left tire blows, so you put another one on, and then that one hurts, and then you put more stress in the front left, and that one, you get it, you get it. You just keep running the circles. And so we would need to step back and look and say, okay, like, well, what is the actual pain? Is it uh, soft tissue? Is it joint? Is it muscle? Um, is it uh, a sharp pain? Is something damaged in there? Or is it actually movement-based? Is it only happening when you're doing a certain activity? Or is it all day long? So this is a whole uh, evaluation you would go through, much like a physical therapist would take you through to figure out what's causing it. And then, then from there, once we can identify what we think is actually the the core problem, then we go on a mission to actually solve that. With things like, hey, my shoulder just started aching. It tends to be a pattern, a groove pattern. So what I mean by that is this. There can be an injury there. There can also be an injury that's long gone. But pain is sensory. And so that can be a learned signal. And so what we need to do is desensitize the signal and teach the brain we're not in pain, stop protecting. That's all you're doing. The brain signal is telling you you're in pain, you're in pain protect because it thinks something's injured. But sometimes even when the injury is gone, it continues to send that signal. Not typically the case in the shoulder, though it could be. That is very common in things like the low back. Like low back pain, low back pain, despite nothing being wrong, it is a learned signal that you need to desensitize. And you see a lot of the chronic pain going away for forever. One, if they are in a bad position, but the other one would be, again, the pain signaling one. Mm-hmm. So for the shoulder, um, there was no like acute injury there, you said, right? It was just more of like no. a- I've had trap problems. That's been my chronic thing. So this is the first time I'm having a problem with my shoulder. Uh, historically, it's been my traps, yeah. specifically my left trap. 
Okay, and left trap right shoulder and right shoulder it, for so. sure. Right, like that's this is how it goes, right? Um, so then we would walk backwards to figure out what's the dysfunction in the left trap. Why is that happening? Is it simply motor control? Okay, great. Then we fix that, and that problem's there. Is it actually something else going on? So is the left trap dysfunctional because actually uh, it's the lower trap that's off? Is it maybe the rhomboid or infraspinatus? Is something else happening there that's pulling the rect and you feel the pain in your left trap and you're getting that worked on and massaged and rolled out, but the dysfunction is actually happening in the shoulder girdle. That's the problem, right? Um, I'll give you an example. One of the professional athletes I worked with, uh, Tatiana Suarez, UFC fighter, undefeated, neck pain, neck pain, neck pain, right? Well, we started having all kinds of, of back problems because she actually had an acute injury to the neck. Uh, the shoulder blades are being protective, and so they are pulled way down and tight. And so she's constantly right here, which is straining the neck, which is straining low back, right? So having to work back through the chain, starting with the low back, resolving that pain to let the traps or the shoulder blades relax a little bit, to let the traps relax a little bit, to let the neck finally go through its healing process, mm. right? So you have to kind of come backwards and figure out, is there a starting place that I can get to my guess is with your left trap, it would be like probably wasn't something um, injured in there, but you probably had some sort of, again, what we'll globally call dysfunction. It could be weakness, could be a firing sequence. Um, it just could be neural activation, not on at the right time. Um, lastly, it could be a, a compensatory pattern because of some activity. So every time you go to lift weights or do something like that, um, it, something else is pulling in the wrong direction. With the shoulder specifically, also the very last thing we would evaluate is sleep. So the sleeping position you're in, obviously when you're, if you're a side sleeper and you're rolling in that position, not necessarily bad, but the mattress may not be fitting perfectly for your shoulder and that may be contributing to it as well. So uh, lots of things we could tinker around with there. Brother, this has been so fascinating. Where can people follow you and learn more? Sure. Uh, my social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram, Dr. Andy Galpin, uh, those are pretty much exclusively science communication. So like, I don't do anything else on that. But if you like to hear about science and this kind of science, uh, that's what I use those for. And then um, any links to any of the companies that I have, the our sleep company, Absolute Rest, or Rapid Health and Performance and all that stuff, you can Google it. Or uh, I think it's all on my personal website, handygalpin.com, but uh, it's not really what I do with my time mostly. So it's, it's probably all there if you Google it. I love it. All right, everybody, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.